Uh, if you will, turn in your Bibles to the book of Hosea, okay? And if you're not sure where Hosea is, in my Bible, it's on page 751, okay? <laughs> but the, the best way to find it is if you flip to the middle of your Bible and if you find Psalms, go right. And uh, go right until you pass the, the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And then you'll hit Hosea. It's right after Daniel. Um, the reason I gave you directions is because uh, we know uh, the minor prophets are a section of scripture that are lesser known uh, than many other sections. But this morning we're going to find our way uh, to the book of Hosea. So Hosea. Adultery, prostitution, harlotry, whoredom. Do I have your attention now? I can't see the expressions on your face behind your masks. And those of you who are watching online, you're scrambling for the remote control to push pause or turn the TV off. Just hold on. Hold on. These are shocking words to hear on a Sunday morning uh, from a, a preacher in a sermon. Uh, and if you're shocked to hear those words come out of my mouth, uh, I can guarantee you, I can assure you that Hosea's audience was just as shocked 3,000 years ago, uh, almost 3,000 years ago, uh, when these words came out of Hosea's mouth. You see, God wanted to get his people's attention through the book of Hosea. He wanted to give them an important message. And he does it through the real life experiences of this prophet who is named Hosea. Uh, who marries an unfaithful wife and experiences those words that I just said. You know, as we will see here this morning in this book, and this week's going to be a little different. We're actually going to go try to overview the entire book. Every week we're not going to do that. We're going to probably focus in on passages. But this morning's an overview, and as we're going to see, Hosea is really what we would call a jilted lover, a jilted husband. Uh, he's been cheated on. He's been abandoned by his wife repeatedly. And I know that some of you actually in this room can probably identify with that experience and all the emotions that go along with it. But even if you have never experienced it, uh, this is the image that's set before us today in the book of Hosea. And Hosea is this jilted lover, this betrayed husband. And he paints a picture for us of how God is also a jilted lover, betrayed and rejected by his own people. And yet, as we see in this book, even though God's people treat him this way, we see that God continues to demonstrate faithful, loyal love to them towards those who seek him. So I'm hopeful that you were able to read through the book of Hosea uh, this week leading up to Sunday. In fact, if you got the weekly email, uh, one thing I said in there is I'm actually putting out there a, a, a summer reading challenge for you, okay? I would love for each of you every week to read through the book that we're going to study. Read through it twice. Read through it once leading up to Sunday, and then after you hear the message, go back and read it again. Because as I said, these minor prophets are unfamiliar to us. And there's a lot of things going on in these books that I think uh, if you expose yourself ahead of time and hear it, and then you hear a message about it, and then go back and read it one more time, I think a lot of light bulbs will go off. And you'll be able to see more clearly the truth that God is trying to communicate. You know, Hosea is a great example, I think, of how that will help help you uh, prepare and help you process. Because as you heard, there's some startling words in Hosea, things that kind of catch you by surprise, shocking even. Startling words and also startling truths. 
Um, and then, as we see uh, this morning, we're going to see really a startling, shocking kind of love that God offers to his people in spite of what they've done. So God communicates a powerful message to us through Hosea. It's an important message. It's a message of love and faithfulness. Um, and we want to see that picture together uh, this morning. Will you bow with me as we pray? God, I pray that you would speak clearly to us this morning. Lord, help my words to fall to the ground and let uh, your word speak clearly and loudly to the hearts of our people here this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So this morning as we jump into this book, uh, Hosea part two, uh, we're going to start out by saying this is really an introduction to what we call the book of the 12. And you might say, what's the book of the 12? Well, that's what the Hebrew Bible calls the minor prophets. Okay. So in the Hebrew Bible, uh, the Old Testament is divided into three sections. The Torah, which is the law, so that's the first five books. Uh, the Nevi'im, the, the prophets, and that is 17 books. There are five major and 12 minor. And then the last one is the Ketuvim, the, the writings. And so those are your Hebrew words. I forgot to bring it up here. I was going to bring my English translation of the Hebrew Bible, and it's called the Tanakh, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. That's what they call it. Um, so this, the middle section there is called the prophets. And in the prophets, you have the five major prophets, and then you have this one thing they call the book of the 12. All 12 minor prophets are grouped together into one book. And so what we want to see is, I mentioned this last Sunday, they're minor, but not because they're less important. Uh, they're minor because they are smaller and shorter. It only has to do with their length, because their importance and their message is just as important as what we would call the major prophets. And so... Um, what we see in the book of the 12 is really one message, is that we worship a God who keeps his promises. We worship a God who keeps his promises. And every week, we're going to kind of see a different angle of that as each prophet addresses a different issue or addresses a different thing that God wants his people to realize. Uh, but all the way through that, we see that God is faithful to keep his promises, as we're going to see today, faithful to continue loving with a steadfast love. We're going to see this almost every week that he is also faithful to uh, to bring consequences and judgment for sin. By nature, the prophets are a lot of warnings. And, and for that reason, I think that's why Christians and churches like to avoid them because it's not fun to look at warnings all the time. Uh, and so that's a part of it. There are warnings. Uh, we'll see this morning that that Hosea says you reap what you sow. Whatever you put in the ground, that's what's going to grow up and bear fruit. And so he says to the people of God that what you have been putting in the ground is flawed. So these are the minor prophets. Uh, and it's important for us to understand this, that although they have messages of judgment, it's not just doom and gloom. Okay. And we'll see it sprinkled throughout Hosea. Uh, there are messages of hope and restoration and of the powerful love of God, even in the midst of failure and judgment. And so keep your eyes open for those things. Uh, in fact, when we talk about hope and salvation and the coming glory, that word salvation, that's actually what Hosea's name means. Hosea literally means uh, he saves. In fact, Jesus's name in the New Testament, if you pronounce the Hebrew way, is Yeshua. And it's very similar to Hosea, uh, really the same Hebrew root, this idea of salvation and saving. So the very beginning, this introduction to the book of the 12 is this message of salvation from a God who is faithful to love and unfaithful people. 
So that's where we're going to start. One, I want to give you just a brief history lesson before we jump into the text, okay? So uh, the next slide here shows uh, in the Old Testament, we have what we call the 12 tribes of Israel, okay? And uh, in about the book of, uh, I believe it's First and Second Samuel, you see the account of how King Saul was the first king of Israel, then came King David. And they're united into one kingdom. Those 12 tribes are one kingdom under King David and then under his son, King Solomon. But only two generations after David, his grandson, King Rehoboam, they have a civil war. Now, here in the United States, we're familiar with the idea of the civil war. It's one of the major parts of our nation's history. Uh, and, in, and if you think about it, this is something that helps me remember. In, in the U.S., uh, in our civil war, the South rebelled against the North. Well, it's the opposite in, uh, in the land of Israel. In their civil war, the North rebelled against the South. Um, and so what happens? You see the kingdom divided into two kingdoms. In other words, it didn't end with a reunification. It's, they were divided into this northern kingdom that was called Israel. Sometimes it's called Ephraim. Uh, if you read through the prophets and you see it, and God says, you, O Ephraim, he's talking about the northern kingdom. He's talking about the ten tribes. Okay, so that's the ten tribes. But then we have the southern kingdom, which is called Judah. That's kind of the representative tribe for the southern kingdom. That was only two tribes. And so we're divided now into two kingdoms. So each one of these prophets that we're going to look at over the next 12 weeks is either speaking to the northern kingdom or to the southern kingdom. And today uh, we're going to see that uh, Hosea is actually talking to the northern kingdom, to the northern kingdom of Israel. Um, what happens to these kingdoms? So this is actually really important to understand. This is the backdrop of what these prophets are talking about. Basically, these prophets come and say, hey, God's people, you received the Torah, you received the law. And you even receive some of the writings, but guess what? You're not following it. And so here's a warning. God's about to bring judgment upon you. If you don't turn back to God, please return to him or he's going to bring judgment upon you. We're going to talk about that a little more today. Well, guess what? The nation of Israel and the nation of Judah did not heed the warning. And so the next thing that happens is uh, the northern kingdom actually is conquered in 722 B.C. 722 B.C. And then about 140 years later, uh, the southern kingdom is conquered by Babylon. So Assyria conquers um, Israel and Babylon conquers uh, Judah. All right. So that's a little bit of historical backdrop. <clears throat> And uh, when you hear this, uh, by the way, so when, when, when Hosea is threatening judgment on the people of Israel today, when we see this in the book of Hosea, he says, Assyria is going to come and wipe you out. Assyria is going to wipe you out if you don't come back to the Lord. Assyria is the bad guy of the bad guys during this time. Okay, so, you know, nowadays we kind of are familiar with our history. We know who the who the countries that are unstable are. We know who the countries that are brutal are, the dictatorships, the democracies. We all kind of know that. It was no different in Bible times. They knew the surrounding nations, and nobody wanted anything to do with Assyria coming after them because when Assyria decided to conquer you, they were incredibly brutal. We may have some uh, more stuff that we talk about in the days ahead just to give you a better picture of what kind of a nation they were. It was awful. So that's the threat that is looming over Israel. And so one more slide here. Uh, Hosea is writing his message somewhere between 760 B.C. and 722 B.C. or 720 B.C. Uh, we look at uh, Hosea chapter 1 verse 1. It says, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, 
Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. <clears throat> so that's like your time stamp, okay? We can actually go back to history and figure out that the years that he is talking about are 760 to 720. And so we know now, in hindsight, that the end is drawing near. The end is drawing near. And if you think about this, what we talk about today, for Hosea to deliver this message and to have, by worldly standards, zero success. In other words, he delivers this message, and guess what? In 722, it all falls apart anyways. And yet, God says, I want you to deliver this message because I want the people to know who I am, and I want them to return to me. I want them to return to me even after they experience judgment. So this morning as we look at Hosea, I want us to do kind of, we're going to take three steps, and you'll see this in your bulletin. We're going to take three steps together as we look at the book of Hosea. And the first step is just to observe, okay? The first three chapters of Hosea record Hosea's own personal journey, what God asks him to do as his messenger. And God says to Hosea, I'm going to give you a message to tell the people. But it's not just going to be as simple as you speaking it. I actually want you to live it. He kind of tells them, I want you to act it out for them so they can understand better what my love is like. And so we're going to look here. Uh, the first word, like I said, is to observe the picture that is painted for us. It's a picture of heartbreaking adultery here in, in the first, cha- first three chapters of Hosea. So let me just read some of these verses. If you've got your Bible, follow along. Uh, but Hosea chapter 1, uh, this is the beginning of Hosea's message. Verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go and take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now, by very nature, those are offensive words, aren't they? Uh, God says, I want you to go and find a wife that's going to be unfaithful to you. I want you to go and find a wife that's already unfaithful, messing around. And I want you to take her and marry her. And you might say, how could God ask a prophet to do this? And God tells him throughout the course of this book that I'm asking you to do this, to demonstrate the kind of love that I have for my people. So he takes this wife, and her name is Gomer. And a lot of people will make jokes about that, right? What, there's not, that's not one of the, the top baby names that you would hear for girls in our society today, right? Gomer. Um, but in those days, it was just a common name. But he takes her. What's not remarkable about her is not her name, but it's her reputation. She has a, a, a dirty reputation. She is not a faithful woman. So what happens here? Verse 3, he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblam, she conceived and bore him a son. Now here's the next thing. They have three kids, and, and God says, when God tells the prophets to name their kids, uh, he gives them significant names. So I want us to just see, we're going to briefly look at these names. Listen to what he calls them. Uh, verse 4, the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel, and on that day... I will break the bow in, of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So in other words, he's saying this kid's name predicts what's going to happen. That Israel is going to get crushed in the valley of Jezreel. So here's illustration number one. Your first kid, we're going to call him Jezreel. Okay? Illustration number two, verse six. 
she conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name, no mercy, for I will have no more mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen, but by the name of the Lord their God. So here's the second one. God says, in other words, the time is almost up. I'm done showing mercy, so name this daughter no mercy. Now, did you notice something about the wording here? It says, she conceived again and bore a daughter. And it's kind of implied in the text here that Hosea is probably not the father of this child. Um, and so that's what's going on here in this text. That's baby number two. Uh, baby number three, verse eight. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. Again, doesn't sound like Hosea is the father. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your God. In other words, God says, you've rejected me and it's going to look like, in fact, I'm going to reject you for a time. You will no longer be called my people because you've been unfaithful to me, just like Gomer was unfaithful to Hosea. And yet, listen to these verses in verses 10 and 11. Here's our first glimpse of hope. That all sounds kind of hopeless and dirty and messy, doesn't it? But look at verses 10 and 11. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall now be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered again together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. You notice how God says, even in the midst of judgment, I am offering you hope. And I am promising that I will restore you when you return to me. There's hope even in the midst of this hopeless situation. Now, if you're Hosea, at this point, you're thinking, man, this is awful. How could it get any worse? Let's look ahead at chapter 2. We're going to skip ahead to verse uh, 5. This is talking about, uh, basically, Hosea is talking to his children, or God's talking to the children. He says this, Their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me bread and my water and my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. In other words, she is just chasing after people who are giver things. People who are giver things. Verse 7, she shall pursue her lovers, but she shall not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. And then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than it is now. In other words, she's saying, I've kind of run out of resources there, so maybe now I'm going to go back to Hosea. And maybe he'll take me back. And of course he does. Take her back. He welcomes her back. But guess what? That's not the end of the story. She goes away again. We know that she goes away at least two times. If we skip ahead to chapter 3, um, she's gone again. And now what does God say to Hosea? Chapter 3, verse 1. The Lord said to me, go again and love the woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So, verse 2. So I bought her. For 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall no longer play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. In other words, God says to Hosea, go back 
and buy her. Somehow she's gotten herself sold into slavery. And so it says he pays, the price he pays for her is basically, we know from history, is half the price of a slave. In other words, she's damaged goods. Nobody wants her anymore. And yet Hosea goes and buys her back again and takes her home and says, I want to love you and keep you forever. Even though you've turned your back on me, I want to keep you forever. What a powerful, crazy story. Shocking story. But you see, it reveals a shocking kind of love. The kind of love that God shows to his people. You know, uh, Warren Wiersbe, a biblical scholar, calls this an action sermon. It's not just a sermon that Hosea gets to preach. He has to live it out. And praise God um, for what God reveals through it. This nature of God. So that's our first step is to observe this heartbreaking picture of adultery. And we see, you heard some of the hints there, it's kind of going back and forth between Gomer and Israel, that Gomer's behavior represents the behavior of God's people. They've turned their back on him. And so that's the second step we want to take now is to examine. We want to examine the description of these unfaithful people, these people that are represented by Gomer. Uh, And I think there's a lot for us to notice here in this section, Uh, because really uh, chapters one through three are kind of that story of what Gomer did to Hosea. Chapters 4 through 10 are more this description of what uh, what these unfaithful people are like. And, and if you will, it's called really the indictment. This is God's indictment against his people. Uh, so look at 4 verse 1. Chapter 4 verse 1. It says, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. So what we see here is it says God has a controversy with you. He has a dispute. This is a word that's used often in the prophets. Jeremiah and Isaiah use it all the time. But God says, I have a dispute. I have something I need to point out here. We've got a problem. Our relationship is interrupted. And I want to talk to you about this dispute. Uh, chapter 12, verse 2 uses the same word. It talks about uh, the Lord has an indictment against Judah. So now he's talking about Judah. But this word basically means an indictment. And so when you come to court, I'm not an attorney, but when attorneys come into a criminal trial, they present their case and they lay out the evidence and they say, here's the case against the criminal and the criminal is guilty. And that's exactly what God does in chapters 4 through 10. He lays out the case and he says, Israel, you are guilty. And so we want to just take a couple minutes to examine that and look at what is it that they're doing? What is it that they're doing that's unfaithful? And uh, there are really three sins that are mentioned here in the book of Hosea, uh, among others. But I think we can kind of summarize them in three words. The first one is idolatry slash adultery. Those two words kind of sound alike, don't they? Uh, But the idea of idolatry, God says, is really committing adultery spiritually. So what we see in the book of Hosea is that God's people over and over and over again go and worship idols. And remember, one of the Ten Commandments is there's one God. You shall worship him alone. You shall not worship any graven images. You are to worship the one true God. And yet God's own people repeatedly turn away and go and worship idols. They go and worship idols. Uh, Back to chapter 2, verses uh, 2 through 5 says this, the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. And it talks about how the house of Israel has, has turned away and turned to idols. 
Uh, flip ahead to chapter 8. I want to just read a couple verses. We're going to be flipping around in Hosea a little bit now. Hosea chapter 8, verses 4 through 6. Really, chapter 8 talks about a lot of their flaws. But it looks, at verse 4, it says, They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel. A craftsman made it. It is not from God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. What we see here is they've made golden idols. In fact, they made a golden calf just like back in Exodus. And they said, this is the God that we're going to worship. Very offensive to God. Chapter 9, verse 1. Rejoice not, O Israel. Exult not like the peoples. For you have played the whore. Forsaking your God, you have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. So what's going on here? These people are worshiping idols, which gives them a different set of values. And then it does lead to literal adultery, uh, sexual immorality. So these things go together. They're worshiping, what we find in the prophets is they're worshiping a God called Baal, uh, B-A-A-L. And Baal really just means master. So you might have the Baal of Bethlehem. You might have the Baal of Hebron. You might have the Baal of, of every different city. Kind of has their own little local God that everybody's praying to. And God says, you've been serving those idols and those gods instead of me. And that's like playing, uh, committing adultery is what he says. Flip ahead to chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. So God's reviewing their national history. Verse 2, but the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept on sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to the idols. Look at 14, verse 8. O Ephraim, what do I have to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I'm an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. In other words, God says, you're going after all these things. These idols, but they can never give you what you need because they're not real. They're not the true God. Chapter 10, verses 5 through 6, flip back there. And this this is what's going to happen to those idols. Chapter 10, verses 5 through 6. The inhabitants of Samaria, that's that's the capital of the northern kingdom, they tremble for the calf of Beth-Avon. Its people mourn for it, and so do its idolatrous priests, those who rejoiced over it and over its glory, for it has departed from them. The thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. In other words, literally, this idol is going to get hauled away as prized by the conquerors. And so God says, this, the sin of idolatry, you're turning to someone else like a, like a lover, like another lover. You're worshiping these other things. And so we have to ask that question, what does idolatry look like today? Because I don't think I've ever met anybody who bows down, uh, at least it's not common here in the United States, to bow down to an idol and worship a Baal. Not many people are doing that. Now around the world and other places there are people who do bow down to idols, but it's not common in our country. So what does that look like here in America? I want to read you a quote uh, from Tim Keller. And he's talking about sin in general, but specifically idolatry. Tim Keller defines sin as this. He says, sin isn't only doing bad things. Okay, a lot of times we could think that, right? That sin is just when I do a bad thing. 
It's more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than on God. Whatever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. Sin is primarily idolatry. So, brothers and sisters, I would say if we sit and examine ourselves and say, what is it that I'm building my life on? I think it's probably pretty easy for a lot of us to say, well, at least part of my security rests on my retirement. Or I'm secure because I'm married to this person. Or I'm secure because I have this house or this lifestyle. And we elevate those things into the position of an idol. In other words, if I don't have that thing, I'm not complete. And God says to us, the only thing that can make you complete is a relationship with me. Anything else is idolatry. To find your security, your hope, to build your life on any other thing is idolatry. You know, uh, idolatry and adultery are the very first thing that are mentioned here in Isaiah. That's the whole illustration of Gomer. She's turned away from the true God and from her true lover and is pursuing other people. God says, my people have done the same thing. They've turned away from the true God and are pursuing idols. And that's like spiritual adultery. They are unfaithful to the God who's loved them. And I would just say, brothers and sisters, let's watch ourselves on this one. Because I think, as we're going to see, these people thought they were being religious, and yet their hearts were going in the wrong direction. But we'll get to that. The second thing, uh, uh, let's see, my clicker's not working. Can we go to the next slide? So the the second one that I want to mention here this morning is ingratitude. Kind of the, the description of how the people were being unfaithful was not just idolatry and adultery, but also ingratitude. And so what are we talking about there? Uh, chapter 8, especially verses 2 through 6, talks about this. It says, To me they cry, My God, we, Israel, know you. Israel has spurned the good, and the enemy shall pursue him. They made kings, but not through me. And they set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and their gold, they made idols for their own destruction. In other words, Hosea is saying, You have forgotten where your good things come from. And I think what Hosea is saying is that's one of the first steps we have to falling into idolatry is forgetting that we are called to be grateful to the God who provides all things for us. So ingratitude is another thing. And then thirdly, uh, hypocrisy. These folks were uh, practicing hypocrisy, unfaithfulness through hypocrisy. Um, this whole idea of insincere worship, uh, verses 12 and 13 of chapter 8 says this, were I to write for him my laws by ten thousands, they would re- be regarded as strange things. And as for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. In other words, these folks were going through the motions. They were very religious people. They were coming to God's temple and making sacrifices uh, or to their places of worship and making sacrifices. And they said, we're religious. We're good. We're following the Lord. And yet God says, You're following me with your words and your actions, but not with your heart. You've given your heart to someone else. They have a sin problem. They have a sin problem. And so what does God say about this? Look at uh, chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. This is God's desire for his people. 
What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. Look at verse 6. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So God says, I want, you, I want your heart. I don't just want you to give me your offerings. I don't want you to just show up to worship because that's what you're supposed to do on, on the Sabbath. I want your heart. I desire steadfast love and knowledge of God. That means a relationship with God rather than all the motions. So as you see, God's people have a sin problem. That brings us to the next step. We want to examine this, this unfaithful people, but realize that they have the sin problem. As John Gerhardt shared with us last week, God's people have a sin problem and he gives them a salvation solution. And we see that he offers that through a relationship with him. You know, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, back to that, where he gives them the indictment. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with you. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. In other words, there's no relationship between God and his people. There's a problem. And God says, I'm going to have to cut it out the hard way if you don't return to me. It's like cancer. Those of you who've struggled with cancer, my dad had cancer, um, had a tumor, and the doctor had to cut the tumor out. When you have a cancer, you have to remove it. And God says, if you all don't return to me, we're going to have to cut out the tumor. And that's going to be painful through this judgment. And yet, he says, I'm going to offer you restoration. And know this, that God says, when I am telling you I'm going to punish you, the purpose of this punishment is that you will return to me. He wants his people to return to him. We see his heart throughout this book. So this idea of a sin problem. It's really interesting to me that uh, God actually says that uh, if we go to chapter 6, verse 7, it says, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. In other words, the things that they're struggling with are the things that Adam struggled with, turning their back on God and trying to do things their own way. But that brings us to the third step this morning. The third and final step, and that is to embrace the invitation to experience God's unfailing love. See, God in the book of Hosea is waiting for his people to return. God throughout human history is waiting for people to turn to him, even today. He says, I want you to experience my unfailing, steadfast love. Romans 5 8 says, While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, we were unfaithful. We are sinful humans. We have a sin problem. But God offers us a salvation solution through Jesus Christ. God is waiting for his people to return. Let me just read a couple verses. Uh, we're going to breeze through a few verses here, starting in chapter 11, verses 8 and 9. It says this. How can I, he announces all this judgment and then he says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. He's calling them to turn back to him. He says, when you return to me, I will not bring this judgment upon you. Chapter 12, verse 6, it says, So you, 
by the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. Hold fast to love and justice. We see God is inviting his people to return to him. Chapter 14, we're not going to read this, but that's the conclusion of the book. And God goes down here and just says, I want you to, verse 1 says, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. And it's just a beautiful description, really graphic, vivid imagery in chapter 14 of God says, I want you to return to a place of peace and rest with me. Verse 4, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. And he goes on to just describe how beautiful and peaceful a restored relationship with God will be. Back to chapter 3, all the way back to where we started. Back to this story. The Lord said to Hosea, Go again, love this woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, even though they turn aside. For the children of Israel shall dwell, verse 4, many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. And afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. You see, Hosea purchased Gomer back and God restored his people. God gives promises of healing. Read through chapter 2, all the promises that God says, I will bring healing when my people return to me. But in closing, I just want to read you some verses from the New Testament. Some verses from the New Testament that describe this unfailing love that we truly experience through Jesus Christ. Uh, Romans 8 verse 1. Actually, Psalm 136 is one of those chapters that talks about it in the Old Testament. Read that psalm. Every verse ends with, His steadfast love endures forever. This is a theme that comes out throughout all Scripture, Old and New Testament. New Testament, Romans 8 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. And at the end of Romans 8, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. See, the message of Hosea is to embrace the steadfast love of the Lord. So we see from the example of Gomer, too often we are tempted to embrace other things, maybe even other people. And God says, embrace the steadfast love of the Lord. That is your only hope in life and in death. And God says, I show it to you through what Jesus Christ did when he died on the cross. Seek him and you will live. You know, God loves you. He's pursuing you even more than Hosea pursued Gomer. And when you're tempted to embrace other things, remember the great love that he showed you. And remember no matter where you are, that he alone is the one who can save you. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this chance to worship you, and we thank you for this powerful message from Hosea. God, I pray that uh, you would protect us as a people and as a church, God. I pray that we would um, 
demonstrate your love to every single person we run into, God. Thank you for giving us a better understanding through this story that Hosea had to enact. And God, I pray that we would be a faithful people to you. And Father, now I say to you who are able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before your presence with your glory, with great joy, to our only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. And you are dismissed.